Everybody no, is attracted no, no. to Tony Collette. No, everybody's. Tr- I would love for you to let me elaborate. To explain, <laughs> strong, powerful female women. <laughs> this is gonna be such a bad cast. Oh no! They're such a good movie. I know. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to have this platform. <laughs> they shouldn't just let anyone make a podcast. That's true. That should be like you have to take an intelligence test. <laughs> you should be screened. Yeah. Well, speaking of powerful women, Whoa. we just lost a great one yeah. today. True. Betty White has passed away. Yes. And on the heels of another Hollywood figure, Jean-Marc Vallée. Jean-Marc Vallée. Jean-Marc Vallée died. Dude, I was just going to bring that up because I am extraordinarily sad. He was an amazing filmmaker. I sent you that article where, yeah. where Denny Vinu basically talked about how great he was and that he was just, the quote was that he was the one that knew where the keys to the car were lost or something like that. Yeah, I didn't realize he was French-Canadian. Yeah. And so Denny paying all the respect to him, and the way he wrote that article, I mean, I presume those were his own words. Yes. It was beautiful and very sad at the same time. Jean-Marc Vallée was most recently known for creating amazing content. He launched Big Little Lies, season one, the most hailed season of Big Little Lies. For HBO, and then he went on to do Sharp Objects with Amy Adams, also for HBO, which was an amazing limited series. And then um, before that, he did Dallas Buyers Club, which was my favorite film of that year, which had this amazing performance by both Matthew McConaughey and um, Jared Leto, which won Jared Leto the Oscar for that year. Oh, yeah. He played a trans character. Yeah, trans character. It was 2013. I'd never saw that one, but... It was amazing. That was my favorite movie of that year. Couldn't recommend it enough. I saw it was trending yesterday on Amazon or one of the platforms or something. But huge, huge loss. He was only like 52 or 53. And, uh, Young man. He just had a heart attack. It was such a... It was so unexpected. I saw Laura Dern post about it on Instagram, and I immediately was like, What? John Mar- Jean-Marc Valley? I can't... Like, I can't believe... I can't... It. It's one of those things where, like... I'm just deeply saddened like I was with Heath Ledger or Chadwick Boseman. I'm saddened by all of the work, all of the fantastic art that we will not see because of their untimely demise, death. It's a huge loss, huge tragedy. It's such a bummer to me. Yeah, too young. And he was just an amazing artist. He was an amazing filmmaker. And uh, he was just on, he was on the rise. He, I mean, he's going to do great things. But yeah, John Mark Valley. <laughs> Huge loss. Betty White, she's almost 100. What a legacy she had. Yeah, she was... She was an institution. I know. She was in so many things. Can you imagine being born 100 years ago? No. 1923, she was born. She was... Like, 22. She was like 40 in the 60s. <laughs> which is which is crazy. I'm not even 40 yet. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, she was around for a long time and she was a wonderful woman. Everyone. That's has, a full life. Yeah. Everyone has been posting a lot about how wonderful she was. I saw Ryan Reynolds just post something about her. Yeah. We should all hope to be so full of life. Yeah. At that age. I agree. Vibrant. So here we are to talk about something else that is just a great work of art. On this New Year's Eve. On New Year's Eve. It'll be the new year. When this will I... have been the last film we see this year. True. Unless you watch something tonight. <laughs> I probably won't. 
But I can't honestly think of a better way to end it. Yep. As far as cautionary tales go, Stephen and I just saw Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's new film. Very in, good. In cinemas now. Very, very good. Yeah. And we both loved it. And we're here to talk about it. Yep. I believe my first words were, wow, mm-hmm. that was a good movie. <laughs> that was a great film. Yeah. Guillermo's always made quality, yes, but also very much, uh, I would certainly call him an, an auteur. They're, they're products of his own mind. Yeah. This, this was an adaptation of a 1946 novel by William Lindsay Gresham. Mm-hmm. And there was a movie made the following year, which ended in a different place. Oh, as really? far as the ending goes, Guillermo's film is actually more faithful to the book, to the ending. The ending of the film? Or of, the of the novel, of the yeah. original book, yeah. In terms of the first film, I think, had a happier ending for our main character, Stanton Carlyle. Guillermo's film ended in a way that was cathartic for the audience, but for Stanton Carlyle, uh, very unfortunate. And shows... Too bad, so sad. Completes his character arc mm-hmm. marked, pocked by hubris, which is... I mean, it's the original tale, I think, of mankind is hubris, is arrogance and overconfidence and greed and buying into your own greatness. Yeah, there's so much to say there. Yeah, it's a very layered and deep film. Not always subtle, but I think, and this is the first thing I wanted to say, is that a film doesn't always have to be shocking to be good. Sure. I think sometimes it pays off so well to, to be able to anticipate an ending. And that's sometimes the most rewarding ending is the one you can... Not necessarily see coming, but the one that feels earned and the one that feels like this is the way it should end. Yeah, I agree. That's how this film was. You want to talk about the cast really quick? Yeah. Talk about an all-star cast. It's funny. I didn't recognize Rooney Mara at first. Really? Yeah. I mean, it looked like her, but she looked like a little bit older. I hadn't seen her in a while. So in my mind, while I was watching the movie, I was calling her not Rooney Mara. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Our main character was Bradley Cooper as Stan Carlisle. And Rooney Mara, like you said, was Maria. His, his muse, Molly Cahill. We also had Tony Collette as Zena the Seer. <laughs> the Seer. The, she's a Seer. <laughs> Ron Perlman as Bruno. All these characters coming from the circus. Who played Pete? The traveling carnival from the first act. Pete was David Strathern, who I always think, first and foremost, wasn't he in The Bourne? Identity. Oh, that's right. That's how I know him. But he's great. He was in Lincoln, Godzilla. He's been in a lot of stuff. L.A. Confidential. Uh, and then we depart from the circus. We meet some other characters. Well, oh, we, you forgot Willem Dafoe. Uh, how could I forget Willem <laughs> Dafoe? Willem Dafoe is in it. Willem Dafoe playing Willem Dafoe yeah. as the monologuing, thematic, the guy who lays out mm-hmm. in not so few words, <laughs> essentially what the film is doing, which is an incredible thing. I can't get enough of this man. Yeah. Uh, and I'm excited to see him in The Northman playing yet another similar character. Yep. But yeah, we meet Kate Planchett as Dr. Lilith Ritter, a psycho, not a psycho. An a, analyst. Uh, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, yeah. Richard Jenkins as Grindle, who I thought was an interesting, I never think as Richard Jenkins as like, maybe it's because Step Brothers is ingrained into my mind. Oh, but yeah. I never see him as a sinister character. Yeah. But he played this pretty antagonistic, uh, scary dude in this film, which is interesting. He was like a great Gatsby kind of character. We also had Holt McCallney as Anderson. He's from Mindhunter, right? Yes. Yeah, very and, good. Yeah. Uh, we also have a cameo, not not really a cameo, but a small part for Clifton Collins Jr. as Funhouse Jack. 
and one scene with Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, Tim Blake Nelson. I was going to say he was in it and he was so good. And I was like, oh man, I want to see a whole movie, a yeah. whole Guillermo del Toro movie with him as the lead. It's funny that you mentioned Step Brothers because the mom from Step Brothers also yeah. was in this movie. Yes, that was Mary Steenbergen as Mrs. Kimball. She's been around. She's in so many things. I think she's an elf, right? Is she the mom and elf? Yes, she is. Which Richard Jenkins was not in that movie, but he might as well have been. <laughs> yeah, an amazing cast of actors and actresses. Just great cast. I haven't seen Bradley Cooper in a long time since A Star is Born, and so it was great to see him. I'm always reminded just what a great actor he is. That guy has range. Yeah. And uh and the looks to match. The looks <laughs> and um he's also a great director as we saw in Star is Born, so to see him, I feel like he's very selective. I mean, apart from playing Rocket Raccoon, the voice of, but I feel like he's very selective in, as as to the roles that he takes. So. Yeah. I just saw him as John Peters in Licorice Pizza. Oh, that's right. He was in Licorice Pizza. Which apparently, the rumor has it, he took both of those roles from Leonardo DiCaprio, oh. who left them to, to do Adam McKay's Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up. Don't Look Now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and he, he, he killed it. He was the linchpin of this film as our main character, and I think he delivered. It's a really interesting character very interesting character dan lauston returning as a cinematographer from both shape of water and crimson peak and then he uh, guillermo wrote this film himself and he's also credited kim morgan as his co-writer in terms of adapting this novel for screenplay kim morgan doesn't have a lot i'm curious to know who this this woman is because i don't i don't recognize most of her stuff anyway do you want to tell us what happened in this film steve yeah we'll do a spoiler warning Here's the spoiler warning, but it follows a man who doesn't talk for the first like 15 minutes of the movie, Bradley Cooper, as he seems to be having great turmoil, something to do with like burning down a house and taking care of an old guy. There was a body shown or we're, yeah. we're unclear what's happened. He shows up at this carnival and uh, these carnies that work there decide, hey, you want a job? And so Bradley Cooper takes a job working there. He falls in love with this young woman, Rooney Mara, Molly, and starts to pursue her. Simultaneously, he meets this like slightly older couple and he's intrigued by their performance, like their, their gifting. Mentalism. Which is mentalism, which is like sort of like manipulating people. It's, it's the thing that like Sherlock Holmes does when he reads people really well. He can kind of like play into a person's emotions and and trick them into thinking that he knows something that they don't know. Yeah. And so he starts to practice this. He gets really good at it. He accidentally kills the guy that taught him it. He decides to run away with Rooney Mara. It cuts two years later. They're practicing and, and playing people. They have like a setup somewhere in the city, like New York or something. And uh, they have this act that, you know, it's a ruse. They're kind of manipulating people into thinking that he can actually speak to their loved ones you know that that kind of thing like a psychic yeah and um kate blanchett shows up and she decides to challenge them at one of their performances and it turns out she's like a psychiatrist psychoanalyst who was hired by this old guy that wants to make use of bradley cooper's talents if he in fact is a muse kate blanchett is proven wrong Bradley Cooper proves himself it gets way more complicated at this point but he starts performing 
to these kind of rich people what's a called a, what's called a spook show yeah or a seance where he starts to connect these rich people to their dead loved ones often times for this case it's like a son or a daughter or something a child who has been lost and he was kind of warned not to do that from the person that taught him at the carnival but he does it anyway to make money and bradley cooper is a character that is seeking prowess the whole time and he hooks up with kate blanchett both physically and (laughs) metaphorically to leak give him information on these rich people who she has had as past clients anyway she gives him information on these rich people he goes and performs these spook shows and it backfires with this prestigious rich person played by yeah richard jenkins as grindle he ends up beating the guy's face in and killing his like bodyguard guy played by the mine hunter dude and rooney mara almost gets beaten but she decides to leave him she was already about to leave him anyway because it became clear that he cared about his status and seeking wealth and instead of caring about her mm-hmm. and then uh kate blanchett in the end screws him over and takes his money and calls the cops on him and he goes on the run and becomes homeless and he in the end becomes the thing that he was scared to become toward the beginning of the film called a geek which willem dafoe was the character that was training these geeks which is essentially like kind of like a freak show at a carnival who is said to be less than a man so much so that they would just they would feast on livestock like actual just animals yeah, they're just essentially drugged out homeless people. That's what he learned, Bradley Cooper, when, before he went on this journey. He was a young, good-looking man, and he asked Willem Dafoe, how to, do you become a geek? And Willem Dafoe said, you go to Nightmare Alley or go somewhere like a down a dark alley and find a guy addicted to opium or you know an alcoholic, and you lure them in in this very specific way. And Bradley Cooper, in the very end, and I knew this was coming, mm-hmm like since it was introduced in like the first act of the movie goes to a, a different carnival, a different guy. This is where Tim Blake Nelson comes into to play from. He was most recently in a uh, HBO Watchmen series as well. And he starts to lure him in to become a geek in the same way that Willem Dafoe used to. And Bradley Cooper starts to kind of mentally crack and laugh maniacally and says, I was born for this. And that's where it ends. Yeah. That, that utter realization of his situation caused him to just lose it and it's they they hang on him like the camera just sits on him laughing for like a minute Mm -hmm. it's it's awesome it's great great performance but that is to say that nightmare alley not only was a very physical specific place referenced in the movie but the whole movie that we just saw was bradley cooper's uh what's his name stanton stanton carlisle stanton's nightmare alley that was his road or his alley his journey to get to the end where he becomes the thing that he fears the most essentially again i said this in the spider-man podcast but it's really poetic very rhyming in that way yeah they they lay it out for you at every stage of the film what's coming and it's so funny because the audience is like yeah and then stan is just playing into it the whole time and you you can't but help but be very tense because you know that this character is just going to keep making these mistakes and falling into his vices yeah his vices that were driven by fear yeah and that was the thing that i extrapolated from the movie is that if there was like a like one thing it was that this whole movie played into man's greatest deepest fear that we all have as human beings which is to be our father (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's more or less 
how do we become something that is revered and loved by our peers Mm -hmm. and our fellow like mankind and how do we not become the things that we hate the most which is you know in this case in bradley cooper's case was his father and they talk about that a lot where like that's how him performing mentalism was the thing that he was doing was he was exploiting people's fears of becoming their fathers or mothers and they talked about that in the movie but that's also the thing that's happening to bradley cooper's character as the movie progresses is he detests and hates his father so much so that he kills him. We find that out in the the late minutes of the film, but, and then ends up adopting those same vices. Yeah. Both alcoholism and infidelity or like weakness to losing to that. But that fear, I mean, that's something that I think about all the time. It's like, I think as, as like just a human being, as a person, you want to be someone who is well-respected in your field is, you know, has some sort of stature amongst your peers or your fellow cohorts (laughs) and being looked upon as weak or not strong. And that, that was kind of Kate Blanchett's character's whole thing is that she didn't want to appear weak. She wanted, you know, because Bradley Cooper called her weak or not strong from their first moments that they were meeting. Mm -hmm. And so Bradley Cooper really not wanting to become his dad, but also not wanting to appear weak. And then Kate Blanchett not wanting to appear weak. And then you had the actual weak character who was Rooney Mara's character being protected by the strong man, like the actual strong man in the circus. There's just this whole angle, every way you look at it, if you peel back all the layers, it had to do with that the whole time. And, and you said this as we were talking about it, you said like, it was interesting too, that you had someone who was as rich as they could ever want to be and who had all the power and wealth, but you know, they still were succumbing to these very human devices as well. Yeah. Yeah. On both sides of the coin. Yeah. You have Richard Jenkins' character who is extremely successful and wealthy. We don't know exactly what the nature of his business is, but he is still in his heart. It's like a Citizen Kane almost. Yeah. He is devastated by his, his past sins and he can't resolve that without looking to someone like Bradley Cooper to give him that artificial closure. And then also Bradley Cooper, who's had all the success in the world at his grift, and yet he keeps falling deeper and deeper into his path of self-destruction. Yeah, and I think that that idea is was, for me, so beautifully delivered in the, early on in the film by David Strathern's character, shortly before he passes away. He explains to Stan Carlyle the dangers of this power, not even power in the sense of like actual magic, but the ability right. and the willingness to manipulate people. Yeah. And then to have that consume you, that idea of self-importance and self-righteousness and mm-hmm. obsessed with basically what power is, the power to manipulate people. Yeah. I think he called it like shut-eye, where you become blind to to basically what you're doing. I think, and I, it made me think of, here's my Dune reference of the day. Wait, is it is it Dune? <laughs> I think it. I think it's Dune. It's one of the excerpts from the beginning of the chapters where Frank Herbert has this quote, this magnificent quote about greatness and being aware of the greatness while you're in it, so that it does not consume you. Mm. It's the idea of like mm-hmm. moderation of that self indulgence, mm-hmm. and we see someone like Bradley Cooper just completely fall into this drunkenness, both literally and figuratively, this drunken state of power. Yeah. So is the original story of man Mm -hmm. is that like i said hubris of just yeah getting the taste for power and control and then just losing yourself to it 
Yeah, even if you go back as far as like the biblical story of Cain and Abel, like, yeah. you know, one of them being wanting power, one of them being the weaker brother, and then one overthrowing the other one, literally even, via murder. Even the angels, man. It's yeah. like Lucifer, right? True. But yeah, it is a beautiful story in that you can see it coming the whole time. And it, and it just, it happens that way. You're I, like, yeah. Yeah, I should say <laughs> beautiful in the sense of like us as film analysts were like, yeah, it was magnificent but it could be very horrifying to certain people that would watch it yeah but it was very well done i mean from a technical standpoint i'm reminded by watching this what a fantastic filmmaker guillermo del toro is Mm -hmm. he is good because he can take all aspects of filmmaking and create a tone or a feeling that is overwhelming and draws you in as an audience member. So it's not so much one thing that he does really well. Like even I could dissect Quentin Tarantino and say, oh, he's really good at writing and then he's really good at production design and like cinematography. Like those are the things that those are his forte. Guillermo del Toro like does it all. Like creates a world. Yeah. He creates something that you are completely enraptured by as a, as a viewer, as a member of the audience. And it's overwhelming. Oftentimes, and I I didn't see Shape of Water in the theater. I kind of wish I had. But being in a theater watching Nightmare Alley, man, there were moments. And he specifically like with sound, mm-hmm. he loves to play with like even the tiniest sounds, like a glass being moved on a table, or even the sound of how because Bradley Cooper is constantly smoking throughout this movie. How when he would take a drag from a cigarette and the sound that he used there, just that like that slight, you know, sound of a cigarette burning down a little bit. That was like a very prominent sound effect used. So he really cares about every aspect of filmmaking. And then the way that it's shot, you know, the cinematography, the the specific lenses that he's using really create this, this sort of haunting feeling in every scene. And it becomes something that when something crazy happens, like Bradley Cooper beats the rich guy's face in and then runs over his bodyguard, you're really feeling it. Not not just as a person who's in a movie theater watching this movie going, wow, that was intense. Uh-huh. You're, you're emotionally along for the ride. You're feeling like you, you almost feel because the sound even is so overwhelming. You're feeling like you're getting run over yourself. It actually took my breath away. Yeah. Um, quite literally when the murder suicide happened, I was, I, I was in shock. Yeah. Oh, that too. Like the gunshot yeah. was so loud. It yeah. reminded me of, of, and it comes from out of nowhere. Uh-huh. It reminded me of how the gunshot sounded in the dark night when I saw it and it's re-released in IMAX. Just Blam, like yeah. huge, powerful. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, that was very shocking and very surprising and very overwhelming for me as a viewer, as like a, a person experiencing this movie right now. Yeah. He's just one of the best filmmakers we have today. And it's funny because we were talking about The Hobbit <laughs> on, <laughs> on the way there. And Guillermo del Toro was slated to direct those movies before he backed out and Peter Jackson took back over. So I would have loved to see him yes. do The Hobbit movies. Yeah, I love what he does with sets, specifically like from the rained out carnival locations they had in the first act to all the high society art deco stuff. Yeah. It's clear that Guillermo del Toro only does passion projects and he loves period pieces and he loves, like you said, developing every part, every detail of the world. You really do get lost in it. Yeah, you do. Like another thing, like his movies always seem fantastical. And this was one of the, the only movies I think that 
didn't have an element of fiction to it of his. I haven't seen Crimson you, Peak. You mean like fantasy? Fantasy. But it still seems like at any moment something science fiction or fictional could, goblin could will pop come up. up. Yeah, because you're so immersed in this yeah. world that doesn't even it doesn't seem real, but it also seems very real at the same time because uh-huh. obviously you're you're stuck, like you're engrossed in it, you know? That was one of the things I was most curious about having seen the trailers and knowing a little bit about the story going in because you don't see the 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 trailer plays off a lot on the what we end up knowing as the geek in the film Mm -hmm. and Willem Dafoe's crazy monologue on man or beast what is it and I thought they'd play more off of like an elephant man kind of surrealism right but yeah it's actually played pretty straight most of this film is played very straight and it works in its own way I like seeing a filmmaker who can do the fantasy and they can also do the realism. And I think there's probably nothing at this point that Guillermo del Toro really couldn't do well. Yeah. I haven't seen Crimson Peak yet, but I'd love to see something more of a horror direction from him. Yeah. I know I've talked about this before, but he was also slated at one point to do the Haunted Mansion for Disney. Yes. Which would be, I still think that would be so sweet. Uh Uh-huh. But that was another thing is, I mean, apart from Hellboy, I would like to see him helm like an actual and a beloved IP. Everyone's been pining for him to do Bioshock for oh yeah 15 years. Yeah. But like you said just now, I don't know if he ever will because he only does passion projects. Yeah. So it's true. I can't imagine he will actually ever helm an IP. He is someone that ties his name to so many projects. Imagine if he did The Matrix. Oh, <laughs> Could you imagine? (laughs) Just do a new Matrix? Yeah, just any... It could be the worst Matrix movie, and it would be better than Matrix Resurrections. (laughs) (laughs) The one we just got. I'm crying internally. I know. Me too. Yeah, but it's it's true. But this was just... I think Gabe and I are like-minded in in the sense that we couldn't recommend this movie enough. Yeah, it it probably, for some people, is a little long in the tooth. Um, It's a a two-and-a-half-hour film, and... Some of the first criticism I saw from people that weren't as thrilled with it as we were is that it was a little bit too long. But I think this is the perfect kind of film for an extra 30 minutes where, like we said, not only is it incredibly immersive, but the way Guillermo del Toro makes movies is that he loves to just let those shots linger. And it pays off so well. Like we said, for instance, in the final scene where you just see Bradley Cooper break and we just get to just see him lose himself for... Mm-hmm. An extended duration of time. Most directors, most studios would have you chop these moments up, and it would it would leave people like me with the bluest balls. And I'm glad we get someone who has enough clout in the industry, enough goodwill, mm-hmm. to be able to just spend the runtime and just keep yeah. those movies long. That's fine. If you can hold your bladder, recommend it, because <laughs> you don't want to really walk out and miss any of this film. Yeah, I mean, speaking from my own experience, I mean, I could see why you would, or some people might be complaining about the runtime. And, you know, not all movies should be two and a half hours long, but this movie is so captivating that I really don't think there will ever be even a couple minutes where you're not just gripping your seat to find out what happens next. Invested. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I get bored pretty easily in movies, even though I love analyzing great art films i also really enjoy blockbusters that i can turn my brain off and be entertained and i think everybody can pull something from this movie yeah whether it's those this very human family dynamic 
the relationship he has with his father. I, I drew a lot from the religious themes because, you know, both of us are from the church and we've seen people in the charismatic movement, uh, how the power of manipulation of minds that are looking for that. I don't know. We could just go ranting for an hour. Yes. <laughs> and I think we have had that discussion on the podcast before, but it's uh-huh. it's so fun. It's just between the writing and the performances, it's f- just fun. Like the first scene where Bradley Cooper comes into his own in the mentalism department early on in the film where the cop is trying to round up the carnies and arrest them. And he just completely dismantles this man. Yeah. Uh, based off of like the man's... Insecurities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so fun to watch Bradley Cooper. It's also the, horrifying. Yeah, who is uh, incredibly charismatic himself, just just lose himself to this character. This yeah, this schmoozy yeah, kind of oftentimes sleazy. It's horrifying in the sense I should clarify. You know, where you start thinking, have I ever been manipulated in this way? Or oh, we've all been. Yeah. Or or <laughs> or have I manipulated others in this way? You know, because it's just very, uh, it's very heavy. Well, it's nothing if not cause for some introspection, this movie. Yep. It's an interesting choice by Guillermo del Toro, you know, not being a sci-fi thing like, you know, we've seen in Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim and Shape of Water and Hellboy and whatever else, but... And yet still so in line with movies like those. Yeah. Somehow it has this... I think the carnival aspect really helps, you know. You don't know. You, you don't know, like you said, if like a goblin's gonna pop out at any moment or something. <laughs> it's just, yeah. He's so good at world building, like you said. Yeah, we couldn't say enough good things about it. I'm curious to see if it'll do any Shape of Water stuff at the awards. I would like to see some some recognition. I could imagine for Guillermo. Yeah, for sure. I could imagine that this movie might do better than Shape of Water because it doesn't have any fictional science fiction aspects to it. You know. Um, yes and no. I don't remember what, like, the public response was to Shape of Water at the time. Everyone loved it. But... People like, were freaking out over it. But I think you and I both actually prefer this one to Shape of Water. Yeah, 100%. And I, I like Shape of Water a lot. Most of that rode on a couple uh, specific factors for me, like... Fish porn. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Michael Shannon. Oh, yeah. But this film just wholesale was was awesome. And there is a lot there to chew on. So I think it'll be a gift that keeps on giving. Uh I'd love to see it again at some point. Yeah. And uh, we'll end here with a song. Yeah. Something from the score. It was a beautiful score. I didn't even mention. But just another element of setting the tone of the film. The music was Nathan Johnson, a frequent collaborator of Ryan Johnson. Are they brothers? They are brothers. He worked on Brick, Looper, Knives Out. Oh, yeah, it's funny. I thought that they were cousins, but no. Oh, he's, no, no, he's cousin, yeah. Cousin, yeah. Interesting. I remember when Ryan Johnson was, he said, I went to my cousin, and he did the score for this movie, and they had talked about that. I didn't know he was, like, doing other stuff. I thought he was just, like, a collaborator. His only feature credits are Ryan Johnson films. Yeah, there you go. Until this. Wow, wow. Good job, Nathan. But I love the music. Good job, Nathan Music Johnson. is very important for me. Yes. Especially with the film. It was items. really good in this movie. The music was great. Definitely. Yeah. I can't get enough noir. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just in that part of my life where I'm just like, give me noir. <laughs> give it to me. Give me the rainy streets. When, and... Have you seen Chinatown yet? No, I haven't. Go see it. I need to. I'm dying. Some people don't like it. I'm sure I'll like it. Some people do. <laughs>
Well, we'll see you next time. Jack Nicholson could just be sitting in a chair and eating bread, and it would be fascinating to me. You know what I didn't even realize until just a couple days ago? I was watching a clip of Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, and he's talking to Robert De Niro, you know, who plays the Murray, the guy that is the talk show host. And I was like, oh my God, he was Taxi Driver. And this movie is essentially Taxi Driver. And I was like, I never realized, like, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that, like, the guy who was in Taxi Driver was in... I'm pretty sure we discussed in that cast that Todd Phillips drew, like, completely... We did, but I didn't didn't put two and two together Uh, that that Robert De Niro Uh was in Joker. Didn't even, didn't even... Wait, was that not Pacino? It wasn't Pacino. I I get De Niro and Pacino confused. Uh, De Niro, Pacino. It's a a me, De Niro. (laughs) Well, here's to you, Nathan Johnson. Yeah. And Guillermo. Del Toro. And Guillermo. <laughs> Me llamo Guillermo. 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 Del Toro. Who are the other two famous Mexican filmmakers? Alejandro Iñárritu. And Alfonso Cuaron. And Alfonso Cuaron. I think both of them have new films coming out next year. Wow. Can't wait. Both of them, fantastic. Yeah. More of an Iñárritu fan than Alfonso Cuaron. But Alfonso Cuaron made the best Harry Potter film, so there's can, that. Can we call... Are they... Are, can we? Do we call them... American filmmakers. I always wonder, like, as far as international films go, like, what, where do we call, where do we like decide? Oh, this is an American filmmaker. Well, they make they make movies for Western American audiences, so I would say that they're American, but filmmakers. So fair enough. Good on you guys. See you next time (laughs) on the Cold Podcast in the new year. Yeah, this will be a January episode because I'm not going to do it tonight. So recorded a last year. Thank you.